Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Cheryl Albright. Cheryl is an occupational therapist, certified yoga instructor, and autism sibling. She's the owner of Soul to Soul Yoga, a studio offering yoga therapy for adults and children of all abilities. In today's conversation, Cheryl explains what occupational therapy is, how she became involved in the field, and why she applies a trauma-informed approach when treating children with autism. We also discuss the benefits of practicing yoga and self-regulation techniques. In this episode, discover what's possible when you balance your body and stretch your mind. For more information about Cheryl and her work, as well as some resources mentioned in the conversation, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. And now, I present you, Cheryl Albright. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Cheryl Albright. I live in Bradenton, Florida, which is about an hour south of Tampa. And I am an occupational therapist and yoga therapist in private practice in the Sarasota, Bradenton area. And I am a special needs sibling. I have an older brother with autism. Let's start with your brother. Tell us about him. He's the older sibling. He's now 44. His name is James. And he's on the severe end of the autism spectrum. So he doesn't have verbal language, although he communicates just fine without it, with gestures in any way he can, and working toward an iPad, although he's not too, too interested in it. And uh, yeah, no, I just grew up in his world. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you growing up? Different. I didn't really know anything different, though. We grew up in a very small rural farm town, and so there wasn't a whole lot of people with disabilities. And, you know, I jokingly say it was pre-Rain Man, so nobody really knew what autism was. And at the time of his diagnosis, it was before the DSM had autism on its own. It was actually fell under the mental retardation umbrella, which is words they don't use anymore. But he still has the intellectual disability piece on his diagnoses. Of course, they give them a list of varying exceptionalities now. But he never, according to my parents, he talked. He was one of the regressive types. So he began to develop okay. And then somewhere around 18, 20 months, all of his language kind of went away and came further into his own world. I'm four years younger, so I wasn't around for any of that. So it was definitely interesting growing up because you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the things that I thought were normal were not at all. There was plexiglass over our windows so that he wouldn't break them or escape out of them. I have a feeling we had the therapy toys laying around and I never understood why until I went to OT school. So, you know, the therapy balls and things for him to bounce on and the trampolines and anything to keep him moving. So he was getting services growing up? <sighs> not like they are today. Okay. The services he did receive were minimal. He had speech before I was born and he went to a developmental preschool where he had some therapies, but it's not like today (laughs) at all. It was very infrequent and inconsistent. Part of it is the rural piece. There just wasn't anybody out there. And what was that like for your parents? That was an interesting dynamic. I felt like I was kind of on my own a lot of the times because it's what's your brother doing? What's he getting into? What's happening? And I would just kind of be off somewhere. And it's stressful. 
stressful household. My brother didn't really sleep. He still doesn't. He's awake at like three o'clock in the morning. I don't know if he can't turn it off or I think there's some underlying sleep disorders that may be going on in the autism population, but he never really slept. So high amount of stress, lack of sleep. My room was across the hall. So of course I would wake up too. And I don't remember them saying a whole lot. Like I never, I mean, I knew that he had autism, but I don't remember them sitting me down and saying that's his diagnosis or that's, there might've been, but I don't recall having any of those conversations. It was just kind of like, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. And how do you support your brother now? So I became his legal guardian a little over a year ago, which is, it's a legal court document that basically continues. So it's like he never turned 18. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't have the same, at least within the United States, doesn't have the same rights that you and I would have. He doesn't vote. He doesn't drive. He doesn't, can't have a credit card, those kind of things. And it's a procedural safeguard for him because somebody could easily take advantage of that and take out a credit card in his name if they had the right information. And this way, it just protects him financially and it protects him against abuse. And if I need information from a doctor, I can get it. That's that's probably the biggest thing. And it looks very different in very different states, but it's interesting being legally responsible for another individual. Mm-hmm. And what prompted that transition over to you? So my father was originally the legal guardian. He became ill and not able to carry that on. And at the time when they did it originally, before he turned 18, I wasn't 18 yet, so they couldn't have me as a backup. So in the midst of medical crisis, we had myself as co-guardian. And so if and when my father was either no longer with us or he became incapacitated that I would just take over. And that's essentially what happened. Okay, got it. And what kind of services does he receive as an adult? Not much. Um, I'm learning that this is a worldwide issue, (laughs) that there's not a whole lot of things for adults. But um, Mm -hmm. he currently lives in a group home, so that's considered rehab or something. And then... Pre-COVID, he would go to an adult day training type center. He was getting speech. I wouldn't call it quality when he was in New York, but he was getting it. And I think there was an OT that just consulted. I'm not 100% sure, but they tried to, I mean, they had goals for him and things that they were working on. Mm -hmm. What's your relationship like with him now? So right at the peak of COVID, was still in New York for a long time. And I live in Florida. That's a 2,200 mile commute anytime something would come up. And so we had given the group home 90 days that we were going to move them down. Well, 90 days was beginning of March. And so it hit New York harder first. We still went and got him. I jokingly say my next, you know, if I ever write a book, it'd be like how to move your sibling across the country in the middle of a pandemic (laughs) and get him placed in five weeks. Mm. So with everything considered, we were able to get approval through the state, probably within two weeks that he qualified for, you have to prove that he has a developmental disability and there's a whole process. We were able to do that. And then it was just a matter of time before somebody had a bed open. And the state of Florida closed down admissions to certain types of group homes. So the ones that kind of fall under state jurisdiction, the one he's in is a federal jurisdiction because that's all that was open. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in the meantime, we used a company called Flying Angels to get him down here. So there was a nurse that sat with him on the plane. And then, you know, she said, I'm going to go get all my, you know, CEs done for the year. And all of her conferences ended up being canceled. So I reached out to her and said, hey, what are you doing for like the next month? And so she came and helped, Mm -hmm. which was huge. Yeah, yeah. What was that transition like for him? 
I said airplane. He, I was so surprised. He actually loved the flight. I was, there's so many things that could go wrong. Right. And I was more worried about the other passengers than him really, but he did great on the flight. We brought my father's old car with us. So he had like a familiar, so he popped right in the Jeep and we took off and he kept looking around at the water and looking at us and was like, what is, this is crazy. He left the snow. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was still snow on the ground to this, like, what is this? And I jokingly say that he was the only one that enjoyed spring break because everybody else's <laughs> spring breaks were canceled. But yeah, no, he, the transition went better than I could ever expected. Mm-hmm. Of course, we all think of the worst case scenario, but right, yeah, he did pretty good. Good. So now he's living in a group home, and I guess with the current situation with COVID, how has that affected your ability to see him? I have not been able to see him since April, and that is due to executive order of our governor. So we just kind of wait and see. Uh, his behaviors tend to spike around holidays. So Memorial Day was really rough. Um, the group home reached out. Fourth of July, same thing. And I'm going to knock on wood. I haven't heard from them this weekend, which makes me slightly nervous, but they must be able to handle it. So he, prior to all of this, he would get picked up for holiday weekends. And at some point, even if it was just for a couple hours, he was able to get out of the house and see family and just get a break. Mm -hmm. The residential facility he was in in New York was horrible. I mean, when we went to pick him up, there was another resident just punching him and staff weren't doing anything. So I'm happy that he's out of there and in a place where that's not going to be tolerated or happen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, his behaviors will spike and I'm hopeful for Thanksgiving. (laughs) If we can get him out of there or at the latest Christmas, there's some talks at the state level about loosening up some restrictions, but yeah. And how much do you think he understands why you can't see him? I don't think he does. I think that's part of his frustration. It was like, you brought me all the way down here and now mm-hmm. where you at? Nobody could have predicted a global pandemic. So much less explain it to, he, it was kind of interesting because when he was still here, he kept going to his iPad and hitting work. Like, why am I not going to a day program? And I actually had a temporary one lined up for him just to get him out of the house like a couple days a week, but that closed down. I mean, I had all these plans and everything lined up ahead of time and couldn't follow through with any of them. Yeah. So, you know, the nurse was really good. Like, you know, all the groceries had curbside pickup and they would at least go pick up a couple items and it was his job to bring them in the house and put them away and things like that but it still wasn't his work or what he would go do during the day Mm -hmm. and I think he was bored so then at night he would grab one of my cookbooks thumb through it and then hand me what he wanted me to cook the next day (laughs) so it became this like well you got to go to the store and get this before I can cook that kind of thing and it Mm -hmm. ended up being kind of comical after a while but (laughs) so are you able to do some video calls with him now I could he does have his ipad the staff always says you know you can call our personal cell phone we'll put him on sometimes I don't know if that would agitate him more just like why do I have to talk to you through a screen again when I know you're close by so I don't don't, we haven't I drop off stuff at their main office for him just like goodie bags of whatever and I always have a card in there and it's like as soon as we can come get you so I'm hoping the staff read it to him the one manager said he would hand her the card like anytime he wanted it read so Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that he kind of somewhat gets it It isn't too angry. Yeah. Well, do you think he's happy there? He's much happier than he was in New York, for sure. And I don't know if it's our proximity, but like I said, I think there was a lot of things that happened that aren't documented. And, you know, he lived with 11 other people. This house is much smaller. There's only six residents. It's Florida, so the weather's nicer. Apparently, he got really cranky in the winter and 
I'd say most of us from Western New York are that way. Yeah. But yeah, I think so. I think he's ready for something to do, though. I think that's part of his issue. Mm -hmm. So Cheryl, going back to your childhood and eventually transitioning to being his legal guardian now, what have you learned about yourself from having a sibling on the spectrum? I think the biggest thing is patience and it's not about you. I think most of the siblings that I know can relate to that. It's never about us. Mm-hmm. And what you can take that as a negative if you want to, but what that, you know, a lot of us end up in service type professions because of it. So we understand the service above self and it's not about us. It's about the greater collective and you can take it in any direction that you want. But if you keep it in the positive track, I think that, you know, that it does lend us as leaders and in different capacities. So I would say, you know, that was the big, the big takeaway, but I also learned nonverbal communication really well. (laughs) I know what my students are up to long before (laughs) they think I do. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, professionally, I learned that, but personally, it's definitely the service piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everybody's story is a little bit different, but siblings tend to get it. Like, I didn't go into it to help. I'm not going to fix, cure anyone. My goal is just to maybe empower that person and make them the most comfortable they can be in their own physical body with what they were given. Mm. Can't change that. I can't change my brother. I can't change his condition I can, and, or any of them because I work with individuals with all different diagnoses from cerebral palsy, Down syndrome. I can't fix that. And I don't have any intention of fixing it. I've done my job if they are more comfortable in the physical body that they were given. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I imagine that your brother played some role in you becoming involved in the field. So let's talk about occupational therapy. Why did you choose occupational therapy? I mean, like you said, there are many other helping professions. Honestly, it was the path of least resistance. So I went to East Carolina University, and at the time, it was the only therapy profession that was still a bachelor's. And I think that probably played the biggest part of it. I could be done. Well, it took me a little longer. In theory, it would have taken most people four years. It was a close. The second was speech. I just didn't want to wait to do an undergraduate degree to maybe then apply to a master's program and have to, like, I just wanted just to be done. Mm -hmm. So I think that was logistically the biggest part of it, but obviously it all happens for a reason. Yeah. Did you always know that you wanted to help people? I think so. I vaguely remember some therapists kind of over the summer and I got to spend some time in his special education classroom. So I knew real quick, I didn't want to be a teacher. I didn't want to be in a classroom. I didn't want that, but I did want something related. And, you know, after years of working at a summer camp, I found that I'm actually pretty good at it. So I might as well kind of just stick with that path. I'm not good with numbers. So I was never going to be an accountant or an engineer. So... How would you describe what occupational therapy is? So I like to joke about this, especially when I'm out networking. Like everybody knows what physical therapy is. They get you up, they get you moving after an injury or an illness. And I jokingly say that we just make sure that when you do that, that you're not dirty or naked. (laughs) So we help with those everyday tasks that you have to do to get through your day. And if there's some kind of impairment or injury or illness or something impacting your ability to perform those activities that you do every day or occupations, that's where we step in. Mm -hmm. So who can benefit from OT services? We have a wide scope of practice, which is probably what also attracted me to the profession because we can work with the lifespan, we can work with all ages and diagnoses. And so in the pediatric realm, any kind of developmental delay for any cause 
in we kind of tend we tend to differentiate between adults and pediatrics. So with adults, it could be after a surgery, after an illness, after a stroke, car accident, any or any kind of accident, any impairment that stops you from performing what you need to do every day. Got it. And that varies between age, if there's a diagnosis, cultural boundaries. It just it just depends on where you are. Yeah. What kind of settings have you worked in? Just about all of them. I got to do traveling therapy for a while. So it's like traveling nursing where you take a temporary contract and kind of bump around the country. And anything from pediatric outpatient clinics to hospitals, acute care settings, skilled nursing facilities, and kind of anything in between. And the only one I would say I've never, I shouldn't say that one of the hospital settings said that, but I've never done like inpatient adult mental health. So one of the hospitals had an inpatient adolescent unit that we would get consulted to, but not, I've never done like adult mental health, I guess. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the impairments might be mental. Is that what you're saying? could be a mental illness. It can be anything that impacts you during the day, whether it's mental or physical. Got it. So talking specifically about the autistic population, what are some goals that you might work on? I kind of look at, you know, what connections need to be made in the brain in order to be able to do a certain task. And sometimes there's impairments in like balance or the ability to process information coming in through your five senses or knowing where your body is in space. And so it really depends (laughs) on the individual. A lot of times I have a goal for, you know, scanning left to right in a smooth pursuit, because if you don't have control of like these little eye muscles, then you can't read or write. So that's eye scanning left to right. Yes. Okay. How would you target that? It depends. We have to start with visual attention. So they have to be able to look at something for a sustained period of time before we can actually track it. So that's usually how I break it down. I definitely don't use anything that has a blue light. So any of the tablets and things to get them to, I mean, we all know that they can like stare at those, right? Mm, I see. But looking at something meaningful, whether it's a letter or a lot of times they can't throw and catch a ball because they can't converge and then use their hands to do something. So getting them to look at an object first and then slowly start moving it through the visual field and see where their eyes go. Because if something, say something happens like over in their periphery, their attention is going to divert over. So I like to work, sometimes I like to work on that in a noisy environment because then they have to work that much harder to sustain the attention and not be so distracted with what the world is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of them can run super duper fast, but when you ask them to stop and stand on one foot, they tend to fall over. <laughs> and it doesn't sound like a big skill, but when you're talking about putting on pants or being able to lift up the one leg to be able to put shorts, pants, underwear, that kind of thing on it, you know, that can impact it. It's also balance. They don't think of it so much as when they're kids, but when they get older and fall prevention programs, that's what they look for. There's certain exercises that you do. So I just took those same ones and put it toward the pediatric arena and vice versa. They cross over. So it doesn't matter whether it's autism or if it's dementia or if there's an impairment in the central nervous system, which is your brain, your spinal cord, and you can address it all in the same manner. Mm-hmm. And how have you collaborated with behavioral therapists? I go into a variety of kind of the, I call them all day ABA type clinics. So these are usually kids who are struggling in the public school system here or private school, and they really need that one-on-one to learn some new skills and it's working out really, really well. So when I go in, I'm looking at the underlying skills that they need to perform that task. And so sometimes the goal may be way too high for that individual, 
And if we can just adjust it, even just a little bit, or have a clause in there that we can adapt it this way, then the child can be successful mm-hmm. or young adult, depending on the setting. So there's a pyramid of learning and it came out of the, how does your engine run program? So it's literally, you know, all these psychologists, they like their pyramids, right? (laughs) So (laughs) at the bottom is your central nervous system and then your sensory system. And as it goes up right before academic learning is behavior and activities of daily living. So like we all should be working together. I know that sometimes there's a little bit of a turf war, but yeah, there doesn't need to be. We need to be working together for the best interest of the individual in front of us. And so these collaborations with a couple of clinics in town have been, I think, hugely successful with, you know, it's fun because every six months I have to update their plan of care and we can all sit down kind of as a team and say, okay, this is what we want them to do. and. I can go, okay, well, in order to get that, we need X, Y, and Z. So then those will be my goals so that I'm just complimenting what they're doing and they're complimenting what I'm doing. Yeah, that's great. I remember when I was working with some students, when I was living in Oakland, California, I had some school cases and there were occupational therapists who were working contracted at the school. And yeah, we would collaborate on our goals and our programs and just make sure that everyone is on the same page so that the rate of acquisition would just be more efficient. Some examples were maybe holding a pencil so that they can learn how to write or how to cut with scissors, which occupational therapists know all of the little micro steps in order to get that ability. Right. So Your approach also involves trauma-informed interventions. Could you talk about that? So it goes back to, you know, that pyramid of learning and knowing that trauma can impact brain development and brain processes. And so, you know, the research that came out kind of when I was just after I was out of college, I think they took autopsy results from people that were on the spectrum and realized that their brains were actually heavier and more dense, especially in certain areas, which to me says that's the, the brain didn't map itself out. So it got stuck in these kind of nerve clusters where you'll see the repetitive behaviors and the echolalia. And it's like, they can't get out of that feedback loop. And so their brains are heavier and they're more dense. Now with trauma the brain will stop developing because it's in a chronic state of fight or flight. And so information gets to about the amygdala and that's it. It just kind of, and those processes get reinforced. The problem with that is the temporal lobe and the frontal lobe don't develop the way that they're supposed to because you're, they're not being used. So nerves together, nerves that work together will fire together and will rewire. And if it's in this constant feedback loop of fight or flight, it's not able to map itself out. So what they found, there's a big research study after the Waco massacre by Dr. Bruce Perry. And he, you know, had a beautiful lab and functional MRIs and well, at least MRIs for the time, which was like 2000. And I think his stuff got published in 2002. So prior to that, imaging has clearly changed since then, but was doing cortisol levels and things of that nature and found that their brains are actually smaller and underdeveloped. The issue is that on the outside, when we do any kind of autism testing, so the ADOS, um, and there's other, there's several other, depends on the institution you go to, but the ADOS seems to be the popular one in the U.S., that when you look at it from the outside, a lot of the behaviors are similar, a lot of the delays are similar, And so on the outside, they can look the same. Autism and trauma, right? Mm -hmm. If it's severe enough, Mm -hmm. if it, if it's definitely, if it's severe enough. So the book, you know, the boy that was raised as a dog, he was literally one of the stories in there. He was literally raised in a cage. Like he was a dog. He couldn't stand upright. He, you know, was fed twice a day. Like it's, I highly recommend that people read it. Just know that you're only going to get through about one case scenario and chapter at a time because it's a lot to digest um but knowing that and having 
a little bit of a trauma-informed lens working with any of these individuals, they're more susceptible to child abuse. Maybe they've had some bad therapy along the way. Not to say that therapists are bad. It's just, we don't know what we don't know. And, you know, maybe they have been mistreated or I always question the ones that were in foster care or maybe even adoption and lack of attachment can cause some issues with pragmatic language and the ability to tolerate touch. And so some of these little symptoms on the outside can look like, well, maybe they're on the spectrum, but really it can be a host of different issues going on. I know the University of Miami was working toward having an algorithm with MRIs to prove if somebody had autism or not. And I heard the researcher talk and then I never heard about the study again. So I'm not 100% sure where that went. So as of right now, your understanding is that there isn't a clear 100% way to prove that an autism diagnosis is really autism, or if there is some trauma in that also. Correct. And it could be a host of things put together too. Doesn't mean that all kids that have had trauma aren't on the autism spectrum and vice versa. It's just knowing can help with your approach. Mm-hmm. And there's like, trying to remember what the TBRI, trust-based relationship intervention, I think is the big one. And they talk about having to make that connection. And I don't understand why we're not doing that with all of our clients. (laughs) Why is that just a trauma-informed thing? What is that? So just, we call it building rapport. Oh, right. So building a connection, having common ground, you know, having the child invested in you and Mm -hmm. the things that you're going to do with them and know that they're in a safe place. And it always boggled my mind why we weren't doing that with everybody. (laughs) Like why that isn't a standard of practice, but yeah. In ABA terms, I guess that's what we would call pairing. That is so important because we do emphasize that the beginning of a therapeutic relationship is so important gaining that trust from the client, whether it's a child or adult. And sometimes we even spend up to three weeks or a month pairing. And it's sometimes also hard to explain to parents that this period is so important. If you just jump in and you start placing demands without having that trust built, then you can just set yourself up to be an aversive. And the minute you walk in the room, the kid's not going to want to play with you. Right. I always say that, you know, it doesn't matter what setting I'm in. If I walk out into my waiting room or if I walk into a classroom, they should all be jumping up and going, who are you taking? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, that should be the reaction, not pulling into my parking lot and immediately having a meltdown. And if that's the case, then I need to figure out either another therapist that could build that report. Like I need to figure out what the cause of it is. Is it just because they know that demands are going to be placed on them or are they having a bad day or did they not sleep? Is it, is it about me? Usually not. (laughs) Usually it goes back to what I learned. It's not about me. So Mm. trying to figure out the cause of some of that too is equally as important. But I think that pairing, building rapport, isn't that with anybody? Like you're not just friends with everybody right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you pick people for a reason. And I think the same needs to go for any relationship, whether it's a professional one, whether it's a therapeutic one, whether it's a personal one, like you don't hang out with people you don't trust. So the same goes for therapy. Mm-hmm. How else does this approach influence the types of ways that you might run a program? So I do a lot of yoga-based intervention and, you know, I'm looking for certain, certain things within, in that, the ability to call and respond, the ability to move their body and copy a motor movement. Maybe I'm combining the two of them and it's dual tasking and I'm asking the brain to do two different things at the same time. So saying and move your hands or whatever the case may be, all of those things are addressing 
more of the central nervous system than they are anything else. You know, my teacher would say that the breath is the key in the door. And so in order to come out of fight or flight, we have, you know, what do we tell? We tell them all to take a deep breath, right? (laughs) I've heard many of you, well, you just need to take a deep breath, which there is some science and theory behind that now, but the goal is to have a calm nervous system. So imagine if, you know, our friends on the autism spectrum were at a nice even keel all day, how much more they can learn. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how I look at it. I'm kind of the underlying foundation to kind of bring some calm to their world. And then if they're ready, then, then they're in a place where they can learn. And if they're not there, rather, I'm using it as a preparatory activity into something else or I'm prepping that student for whatever therapy is or whatever the next expectation is. And it works. Crazy stuff works. (laughs) Yeah, Cheryl, you're a certified yoga for the special child instructor. So what is yoga for the special child? So the reason I think and there's a bunch of us OTs running around doing it now at this point, I think why we gravitate toward it is it breaks things down in a developmental level. So you need to be able to do this before you can do this. And whether it's singing a mantra, whether it's a yoga pose, whether it's just kind of laying those foundational skills, you know, for example, say a child never crawled. Not, sometimes it's not the end of the world, but for some of ours, they don't learn reciprocal movement patterns, meaning the leg and the arm are doing the opposite leg and opposite arm kind of swing naturally as you walk. Mm-hmm. So their walking may look a little funny. They might be a little bit more clumsy. You ask them to cross midline, sometimes they can't do that. And think of everything that you do, you know, to cross the center of your body every day. Mm-hmm. And so personally think that's why a lot of us have gravitated toward it because it's a great foundation to then move forward. And it pinpoints some specific neurological processes that, you know, I always evaluate for. At this point, I found a tool that kind of mirrors what I'm doing. And so I'm looking at, can they attend? Can they visually track? Can they stand on one foot? Some of it does look kind of funny. It looks kind of like a sobriety check and parents are kind of looking at me like, um, what are you doing? (laughs) Being able to walk on a straight line, heel to toe without losing your balance. The call and response is also on there. So looking for those specific things to then be able to do something else. So skipping is on there. Do I really care about the art of skipping? Not necessarily, but I'm looking more, can their whole body do something at the same time? Mm-hmm. And so like you and I are sitting, we're having a conversation. I'm going to be able to stay upright and stay attended, attending to what we're doing. Imagine some of the students you work with, they can't do that yet. <laughs> right? Right. And putting it into whatever social, because I know this is global, putting it into whatever social context it applies to. Mm -hmm. And this seems to be the, it doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter where I go. Uh, During my travel therapy days, I got to try it out on somebody else's dime and a variety of different settings. And the same things kept occurring. We were able to see a lot of progress and give them some coping strategies and some tools that didn't require any equipment. I mean, you saw my office, there was nothing, there was nothing in it. Mm -hmm. Everybody's like, where's the swing? And I'm like, yeah, no, I can teach them how to do that with their body and get the same input without it. There's nothing wrong with the swings. The swings are a great, powerful tool. But if you teach them that that's the only way they can get their vestibular input, then there's no swing or no car ride or motor vehicle of, you know, of choice, depending on where you are in the world that's going to be an issue. So how can we do, how can we break down all those barriers and say, okay, this is how you move your body to get that same sensation. Mm -hmm. That is super cool. I'm a big fan of yoga. I try to do it regularly. I've been having a hard time getting back into it recently, but um, I can definitely attest to the positive effects just on mood and sleep also. 
I've noticed that when I don't do yoga regularly, maybe either I'll have a hard time falling asleep, like getting myself to the bed, or maybe I'll have some breathing issues during my sleep because I also have mild form of apnea. So I think yoga can just help all around. And I can imagine how beneficial it could be for someone on the spectrum. And making sure that it's presented in a classical manner. I know there's a couple, I don't know all the other children's yoga programs. There are several that will, as you get into a pose, may have a song, like you get in the boat and they sing, row, row, row your boat, which is great for the neurotypicals. But if we're going to teach a kid on the spectrum, that's what yoga looks like. We're going to have a problem when they get older and now it's not accessible to them, whether it's their PE class, whether it's out in the community. Because if you were to take somebody to a traditional yoga class in a yoga studio and they all of a sudden belt it out with a child song because somebody taught them that that's what yoga is, there's going to be a problem. And we want them included. We want them in the community. We want inclusion and acceptance that's just putting a barrier. And Mm. like I said, I know there's a couple of different programs out there. This one is very traditional as far as yoga traditions go, as far as the having the singing and the certain breathing exercises and some the eye exercises. And there's, there's a bunch of things that are included and, but they cut very traditional so that if any of my students wanted to go out and access their community, they could. And that's kind of how I look at it. So the ones that do come to my office, you know, we work on having to come in quietly and taking off your shoes and signing in and sitting down quietly and things that are going to prepare them. So it doesn't matter if they go to yoga or Tai Chi or anywhere out in the community. Some of those steps are still the same as far as signing in, you know, Mm -hmm. not necessarily being quiet, but knowing when, when to be quiet and when you can talk and things like that. So There's a social component behind it too. So it's not just this, I think, especially here in the West has this like yoga is this like super elite. You have to have the right leggings and all of this. (laughs) Like I just, I just wrote an article about why you don't need a yoga mat to actually practice yoga. So there's more to it than the actual practice, I guess. There's, you're teaching more, more skills. Yeah. What would a typical yoga for the special child session look like? Do they have their parents there with them? Are you leading the class? Are you going around working with them one-on-one? They can either be in a group or individual. Typically, there's five components, singing, call and response style, breathing exercises, eye exercises, some physical postures, and a guided relaxation. So it comes from integral yoga kind of tradition and sequencing and adapted to kids with special needs but they so if they're in an individual that still looks the same if they're in a group it depends on the group and so that depends on the kids within that group and you know we go into schools you kind of get what you get that's in front of you and you make it work or and those are usually bigger classes than I typically like but you just roll with it. And, you know, I would prefer like three to five students, like in some of the ABA clinics that I go into, there is a group class. And so they're with their RBT. And because of social distancing, I'm masked and kind of off to the side. So I can't, you know, I can't provide that hands on, but I can, I do the whatever I'm asking and then ask them to imitate. And then the RBTs are doing their programming within those instructions and it's actually working out really cool. Mm -hmm. Are you able to provide telehealth yoga services? Because of the lack of equipment, (laughs) it does, it does translate itself well. For a lot of my students, if I already had that rapport with them, it translated real easy. It was a really easy switch. It's just now we're going to be doing it here through the, the computer for ones that I was initially starting up, I think there was a big kind of boom, which is the opposite of what happened in the world. But I think parents were desperately looking for things for their children to do. And they thought, well, this will be nice and calming. So 
we had a big kind of surge in the caseload once I went back to work after dealing with my brother, but it's different how you build rapport, I guess is what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. There was definitely a different finesse about it (laughs) than it is in person. So, but yeah, no, it's easily translated over telehealth. And this is something that insurance will pay for, right? Because I'm an occupational therapist and I don't mention the word yoga in my documentation. So far, so good. I keep it neurologically based. We're working on these skills as a foundation too. And I make sure that if a parent sees a skill that's emerging or they did something or they were able to do something or they independently, it's always my favorite one, when they independently took a deep breath and calmed themselves down. That's important. That's huge. Yeah. (laughs) And so as long as I'm documenting some kind of functional progress and what that means, so they're able to focus longer in school or during their you know, the RBT says, oh my gosh, they actually got through their whole program or whatever anecdotal data I can pull out of an adult that's working with them or a parent. It's been helpful. So, so far, I don't mention the word yoga. I'll do like motor imitation and sequencing and the therapy buzz words that they expect to read. (laughs) Nobody actually reads those, but if I were ever to be audited, they're like, well, we don't, if I, I, had to take out a DBA even because Medicaid and Medicare didn't like the word yoga and my business name. Mm. So I was like, fine, we'll call it all ages therapy services. Now what? (laughs) 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 How do you want to argue this? But if it's, you know, not through insurance, if it's a private pay or even there's some really good scholarships within the state of Florida, if you are not in the public school system, I mean, I put it as OT. They asked how it's academically relevant, which is really easy to do. So it's so a one little quick statement, and then it's approved. So mm-hmm. I try to find money where I can for individuals to make it as accessible as possible. Yeah. The nice thing for you guys um, with, you know, the Global Autism Project is that, you know, yoga for the special child teachers are all over the world. So I was listening to the podcast with the individuals that were in Africa and she said, I can't remember her name, but she said she was in Nairobi. And I was like, oh, the African yoga project's there. And a lot of their teachers have been trained. Mm. My wheels started turning. I'm like, yoga for the special child's global. You're global. Let's figure this out. So yeah, those were our partners, Pooja and Brooke from Kaizora in Nairobi, Kenya. There's a couple of teachers in the Philippines. So if you go to the website, there's a whole list of us that are actually licensed. And then there's more of us that, are, that may not be on there necessarily, but are therapists that have gone through the training as well. Mm-hmm. And there's tons running around New York City, for sure. Have you tried yoga with your brother? So funny story. If I go near him with any kind of therapy hat on, I get the hand. Mm-hmm. He knows when the therapy brain is on and it's like, nope. And we'll walk away. I would like somebody to try it with him (laughs) who's been trained, but just not me. Mm -hmm. All right, Cheryl, I'd like to close with one last question. A lot of our listeners are other helping professionals working with the autistic population. And we know this field can be kind of draining mentally and physically. What advice would you give to other professionals in managing self-care? I'd say find what works for you. Self-care looks different to everyone. I'm with you. I get up and, for the most part, do a yoga practice every morning. Recently, I've discovered sourdough and baking, and baking, uh, kind of thanks to my brother. But uh, do, you know, whatever fills your cup, whether it's going to church or synagogue, a yoga practice, a pedicure. I don't know. Self-care is so individualized. It's just kind of like our therapy that it's hard to say, go do this. But if you do something and it makes you happy, then that's your self-care. And you have to take a break in this arena because you will burn out quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, Cheryl, how can people learn more about you? I have a couple different avenues. The sibling hat, you can find me at specialsib.com. I have a blog and all the social media handles that go with it's either special sib or special sib OT, depending on the social media outlet. 
the business is Soul to Soul Yoga. And that website is just what it sounds like. One big long word, Soul to Soul Yoga. And then it's SRQ, which is like the local airplane acronym, actually, .com. Also has all the social media stuff attached to that. So you can find us mostly on Facebook and Instagram. There is Twitter, but I don't pay nearly enough attention to either of the Twitter handles. But I would definitely say get a hold of us through Instagram or through Facebook. Cool. Well, thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for your time and sharing your world of occupational therapy with us. Yes, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Developing a strong therapeutic relationship should be prioritized when working with children with autism. It is vital to allow enough time to pair or build rapport during the early stages of therapy and continuously throughout. Rapport is an interactive relationship and the foundation of effective communication between the adult and the child. The adult can develop trust by playing with the child, showing interest in what he or she does, and refraining from placing any heavy demands to complete tasks. Establishing rapport can take anywhere from one week to a month. As Cheryl mentioned, skipping over this process may lead to traumatic experiences for the child, and their effects may be difficult to reverse. The pairing stage allows the therapist to discover what motivates the child. This, in turn, helps create a positive environment in which interventions are successful and the child is happy and motivated to learn. The principles of pairing aren't limited to therapist-client relationships. In some cases, even parents may need to re-pair with their children. If the only interactions between a parent and a child are authoritative and full of demands, the parent may become aversive to the child. Going back to the basics of play and following their child's lead can allow a parent to reconnect with their child's interests and create more positive learning opportunities. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.